Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are continuing our Ladies Director series with 2010's The Kids Are All Right. Two children conceived by artificial insemination bring their biological father into their non-traditional family life. That is what happens in this movie. (laughs) Did you expect much else from a plot synopsis? I don't know. We Neither of us had seen this movie. Nope. So I don't really even know why we picked it other than it was directed by a lady and it's a more recent film. This movie's not good. It got a lot of acclaim. It did get a lot of acclaim. We'll talk about that when we get to awards. It was just talked about so reverently. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, this movie is not good. It is ass backwards in how it views specific things about family dynamics. Although I will say this, I was thinking about it in the elevator the other day at work. And came to the conclusion that the title of this movie uh-huh. is 100% accurate. The only people in this movie that I feel like are okay are the kids. The kids. <laughs> the kids are fine. The adults are all messed up and dealing with their shit. There are parts of this movie that messages that I like. I do like when everybody finds out that Jules slept with what's-his-face, Paul, that, you know, Jules is like, You know, marriages is really fucking hard. It's no big secret. Your mom and I are in hell right now. And um, bottom line is marriage is hard. It's really fucking hard. Just just two people slogging through the shit year after year, getting older, changing. It's a fucking marathon, okay? Yeah. It's just hard. I was like, okay, that's really true. I don't care what type of marriage you have. Any long-term relationship is hard. And then you add children and life and jobs and stuff to it. It's hard. That doesn't excuse betraying someone's trust in the way that Jules did. But I get it. Like, I, I appreciated that message that it wasn't so much an excuse, but just like, you know, we're parents and we're fucked up too. and We have our shit to deal with. That felt good. But I feel like this movie kept changing focus in a way that did not make any sense narratively. None of the character decisions make any sense. No, especially Paul, who is the biggest trash bag in the universe. And nothing happens in this movie. Like, nothing really happens. I think things happen, but nothing particularly feels like it has a purpose. No. This is essentially a mumblecore movie. Yeah. That has somehow tricked us into thinking it's bigger than it is because of the actresses who were involved in it. I think that might be the hype machine working for Mm. this movie in a lot of ways. This is just a slice-of-life picture, but the problem, I guess, too, is that the writing and the directing lean so heavy into themes and meanings. And I'm like, if you want to make a slice-of-life movie Mm -hmm. and make it mumbly and introspective just make it just tell a story about this weird affair but at the same time it's like the movie the way it's presented to you is that it has not it's not about the affair it's about the children but the children are like a throwaway to the movie that we're shown it's so bad (laughs) you can tell how hard it is for us to reckon with the plot of this movie because there is none Like, we're trying so hard to figure out what they were thinking. Every 20 minutes, we're changing focus, but you're, at the same time, you're not focusing on anything. Yeah. It's a mess. It's, it's a it's giant a, it's fucking a giant mess. mess. Yeah, which just makes me sad. It makes me sad. 
because Monster was so good <laughs> in terms of storytelling. It was a downer for sure, but it was so good. We don't want to trash any movie, to be honest. Like, I don't go into any movie uh, wanting I, to think it's bad. I had fun trashing Robocop. That was fun. I understand that, but you didn't go into Robocop wanting to say bad things about it. Correct. I don't go into any of these movies. Like, if I think I'm going to hate every aspect of watching a film, it's a veto for me. I am not going to devote my time to movies that I'm going to hate. Anyways, this movie, <sighs> 2010, had a budget of $4 million. It grossed $20 million. So it was it was an indie film. Yep. Let's talk about our writers. Writer, who is also our director, is Lisa Cholodenko. Before this, she wrote a short called Souvenir, another short called Dinner Party, High Art, and Laurel Canyon. And after this movie, she has written a film called Tony Erdman, which will be coming out, I believe, next year. Interesting. We also have writer Stuart Bloomberg. Before this, he wrote for Mad TV. He wrote Keeping the Faith, The Girl Next Door. After this, he wrote Thanks for Sharing, She Said, She Said. He's written on Mozart in the Jungle, Wolves and Villagers on TV, and will also be writing Tony Erdman. I really feel like they didn't have a script. They had a series of scenes, and they just put them all together. It's the grand tradition of Robert Altman and the, and the family slice of life. And, you know, I, I don't know where your trivia lies in this and if we have any information, but boy, there feels like a lot of improv going on here. Much of the film is based on co-writer and director Lisa Cholodenko's relationship with her partner, Wendy, both who had a son by a sperm donor. Okay. Yep. So they just put vignettes of their life maybe heightened for reality a bit. Yeah. But into a story, which that's fine. What we are missing is any sort of real solid connective tissue mm -hmm. that makes us want to care about these characters. Because you shift focus so much, there's got to be something tethering it all together. Yeah, there's there's got to be a through line. You know, a lot of those slice of life movies, like the movie Rachel Getting Married. Yeah. That is such a slice of life. And yes, there's heightened bits of that movie, but it's all these different bits that connect to this one event. Mm -hmm. So when we focus or we pull at different parts of the character's story. It's all relating back to this thing that's happening, the wedding. And here we didn't have that. There's tiny bits in the whole, the daughter's going to leave for college, but it's barely referenced. It has no weight to what is actually happening. It's buried under ostensibly what this movie was marketed as, yeah. which is this love triangle. Mm -hmm. And that's the, not the point the of movie, the movie. The movie wasn't marketed as this love triangle. And there's not even a love triangle. Yeah. It's just an affair. You know, Jules is in a marriage that currently is not going very well. So she's seeking comfort in Paul, who's this new dude who happens to be the biological father of both of their children. That's it. But the movie was marketed as these kids wanted to meet their father. And so that's weird and awkward. That's how the movie was marketed. And that's maybe the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then that's it. Maybe it was the post-Oscars knowing more of the plot and people had talked about it that made me think that and the expectation that I had going in. I had none of that going into this. Yeah, My thought was this movie is about those three. Nope. And I had no idea that the kids played any significant part in it whatsoever. They don't. Or... <laughs> 
you know, had anything to do with the plot, pick one story mm-hmm. and roll with it and then have this other random stuff happen around it mm-hmm. to make it into this wackiness. Yep. But instead, you basically threw a memoir on screen. Yeah. Which is boring if we don't have any reason to keep watching it. Well, I what's the message of the story? Like, I do appreciate the message of like marriage is hard. Like I do I that's fair. Totally. Marriage is hard, people fuck up. That's that's also fair. But it took a whole lot of bullshit to get to that moment and it didn't pay off. It didn't. And then this other character who is interesting and could have some interesting lessons learned. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul is a mess. Yeah. But we could at least get a tiny bit of redemption for Paul at the end. Yeah. Instead, he's thrown in the garbage. Well, also, same thing with Nick. Nick is just painted as this horrible, like, frigid bitch. And it's like, no, there's more going on. And she doesn't even really get redeemed. She just kind of gets thrown aside. Like, it's not good. It's not good at all what they do to these characters. Here's here's what's most off-putting about it, is that it is presented as a meaningful dramedy that has an uplifting ending. And it was like, where? Where was that? That's what your expectation for the movie is. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you're left with, no, it's really fucked up and we don't know how we're going to fix it. Which I guess is kind of cool, except that your tone and how you showed us this and how you wrote it doesn't lead us there at all. No, You've written this story that's supposed to lead us in that direction, and then you drop it. It's five characters in search of a story. That's what it is. And I'm fine with unresolved stories. If you, so am I. If you are making clear to me up front that there might not be a happy ending here. Well, no, I'm fine with that if the journey we go on with them makes sense. Yeah. And that did not happen here. <sighs> All right. So, story blows. Yep. Directing. Our director is Lisa Cholodenko. Before this, she directed... Her short souvenir, her short dinner party, High Art, Laurel Canyon. She directed some episodes of Six Feet Under, The L Word. After this, she did a lot more TV. She did all of Olive Kittredge, The Slap, Here and Now, Unbelievable, and she'll be directing Tony Erdman. I remember saying this at, at the end of this movie. God, this movie is so white. It is. It's so fucking white. I just, her direction is fine. Yeah. Because you have an amazing cast. Who worked their ass off for you. Oh, it's acting the movie. Yes. But I don't know. What did you want me to feel throughout this movie? What did you want to leave me with? Because I still don't know. We talked about this with Monster, right? That we didn't always like the visual choices, Mm -hmm. but it was mostly a budget constraint issue. I think so. And a personal taste issue. Every choice that Patty Jenkins made was specific and pointed towards the story she was telling. Yeah. Where are those decisions here? They happen in tiny bursts, like that scene with Jules, mm-hmm. like probably the first scene when they just start having sex and there's this joy and abandon and how it's being directed. Yeah. There are moments in this movie that are great. Yeah. But I don't know how we got there or earned them ever. Because we didn't. <laughs> all right this is a frustrating movie to talk it, about it really is let's get to our cast which is also frustrating i just don't want it to be ignored that our two female leads that are playing a couple in a well what is presented as a lesbian couple are played by two super straight white ladies 
Now, as far as we know, publicly, Julianne Moore and Annette Benning are straight women. And they are both playing lesbian. Yeah. That is one of my biggest arguments of this movie. I'm just mad at it. <laughs> I, like, it, it's just, it's, it's bad. I, I think back to cultural context. Did we accept that? I was like, it's still 2010, man. It's 2010. For this film, at least one of these ladies should be a, a queer identifying person. Just one. Really, it should be two. But at least one for 2010. One. I'm not throwing shade to Julianne Moore or Annette Benning because they're both lovely actresses. But these were not the roles for you. Sorry. No. So we'll start with Julianne Moore. <laughs> Playing Jules. I don't think we've talked about her before here. I don't think we have. I don't think she's popped up in any of the movies we've talked about. All right. Before this movie, she was in a... She's been in a billion things, so I'm hitting the big ones. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, The Gun and Betty Lou's Handbag, Betty in June, The Fugitive, Nine Months, Boogie Nights, The Big Lebowski, Psycho, Hannibal, Children of Men, I'm Not There, A Single Man. After this, she was in Crazy Stupid Love, she was on 30 Rock, she was in The Hunger Games, Mockingjay 1 and 2, Still Alice, Suburbicon, Kingsman, Golden Circle, and then she was recently in Gloria Bell. She received the script and agreed to star in the film five years before filming began. So, like, she was on board from the very beginning. Okay. And her character has the hardest job. She really does. Yeah. And she does a great job in that role. Because, weirdly, she's the anchor of the entire movie. She is, but she's not written to be. Yeah. That's but that's the problem. That's, that's the only thing that's working for her is that Julianne Moore is so good that you're drawn to her. Mm-hmm. So, she's doing a lot of work. Out of everybody in this movie... She's the most real. Yes. She feels like a true human being who is caught in a dilemma, makes ultimately what we find out based on the script is a really bad choice, Mm -hmm. and then has to reckon with that. And we see that over the course of the movie. She's the most captivating person on screen. She's the only person I want to keep watching. And if we'd centered the movie on Jules, I would have been fine with this. Make the kids a very important secondary plot. They're kind of the driving plot behind the movie, but make it about Jules. Make it Jules' story. Because really, that's what it is, or that's where it's aiming at right now. I get you. All right, next we have Annette Benning as Nick. Again, been in everything. Before this, The Great Outdoors, Valmont, Postcards from the Edge, Bugsy, Love Affair, The American President, Mars Attacks, American Beauty, Being Julia, Running with Scissors, The Women. After this, she's been in a bunch of really small films. She was in Captain Marvel, and then she's going to be in Georgetown, and then she's got a bunch of stuff coming up. I hate her in this role. It doesn't help that the writing's horrible for her character, but I hate her because she doesn't play her with any nuance. She's written and she's played as this woman who is super tough, anal retentive, and has a drinking problem. And that's, I don't see any nuance from Annette Bening to make you be like, oh. What redemption does she have in her character? None was written for her, but I don't see any in her portrayal. Like there's no delivery of her being anal retentive where you could go, oh, this is this is how she copes. This is how she deals with this part of life. So I have a who could have been better. Anyway. Okay, interesting. No, interesting because different actor might have brought something to this role. Robin Wright was considered for the role of Nick. She would have been better. Okay. She would have played this the way she plays Claire Underwood. A little bit. But that would have worked because Claire Underwood is written so severely, but Robin Wright 
add so many layers of of her thinking through and being methodical. And that type of layering would have worked so well for this character to make it understand. Like, this is a woman who clearly feels the pressure of supporting this whole family and being anal retentive and crazy and up in everyone's business is part of how she handles it. I get it. Annette Benning, who is an outstanding actress. She is amazing. She earned that fucking Oscar. Is always a person who plays the very high points of a character. Mm-hmm. Like American Beauty, she earned that Oscar. She earned that Oscar by playing the extreme beats of the character she was mm-hmm. given. That to me speaks like an actor who thrives on really solid bedrock writing. Not saying it has to be g- great writing. It just has to be solid and foundational. She can't polish a turd. It it feels like that. Yeah, that's where this is. Whereas Robin Wright, to me, is the kind of actress who would dig into that character really deep Mm -hmm. and even in there find the subtlety. Yeah. And so I really would pick Robin Wright over Annette Bening for this role. Yeah, I would too. It makes a lot of sense. Next, we have Mark Ruffalo as Paul. We also haven't talked about him on this podcast. Weird. I know. Before this, he was in a bunch of like really small shit. Then he was on The Beat on TV, The Last Castle. The movie he started getting a lot of response to was XXXY. He was in My Life Without Me, A View from the Top, which is one of my favorite underrated movies. In the Cut, We Don't Live Here Anymore, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 13 Going on 30, Collateral, Just Like Heaven, Rumor Has It, Zodiac. He's phenomenal in that. Oh, so good. The Brothers Bloom, Where the Wild Things Are. After this, he was in Shutter Island, Date Night. The Avengers. Hell yeah. Now you see me. And he's going to be on a TV show called I Know This Much Is True, which is currently filming. Best Hulk. Best Hulk. Okay. I really love the Ed Norton Hulk. I really loved where they were going with that story. But Best Hulk, especially after Ragnarok. Okay. I love what they have, what he has brought to the Hulk. Yeah. He has helped the Hulk be silly. Because the Hulk is silly. I I agree. The Hulk is a really dumb character and I love what he brings to it. Uh Uh-huh. And I look forward to more professor shit. So, oh, yeah, it's great. It's going to be super fun. <sighs> he plays a really good dirtbag. He does play a good dirtbag. I mean, he does exactly what the script calls for. I do enjoy the fact that he is a dirtbag, but his performance is such that you lose yourself in his role because the character doesn't understand that he's a dirtbag. He is a person who he's only ever had to consider himself. So that's all he does is consider himself. Mm-hmm. And I do like, and I wish we had gotten more of that, that like his life is all about him and what is good for him. And then, oh, I'm the biological parent to these two kids who have been, who are like grown. And that being a part of their life has brought some perspective to his life. And I liked that. I liked seeing that he gives the kids advice. And sometimes, The kids take it, and it's really good advice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they take it, and it doesn't work out real well. Which, hey, is how all parenting works. Parenting is crapshoot. There is so much interesting in his character. I think what really frustrates me is how they end it. They end it so badly with him by being like this weird, almost stalking moment. And Nick gets this one moment that we can actually like root for her. Mm -hmm. But it's at the expense of this character having any realization of how he hasn't fucked things up. He only finally gets it when Nick screams in his face. Yep. And there could have been some nuance to that. Like the fact that he keeps 
going after Jules when it's clear he needs to stay the fuck away. Like, he has no concept of the fact that, like, this is fucking up the kids that you have now grown to care about because you are literally only focusing on yourself. They don't give him that final chance to go, shit, I really fucked this up. Yeah, no, he's just kind of like there. It's just stupid. It's stupid. Mark Ruffalo filmed his role in only six days. Oh, that sounds like improv script so hard. Well, he's doing his job well. I know. I do have one who could have been better. Okay. Ewan McGregor was originally cast to play Paul. Nah. Nah, he can't play dirtbag like that. Not as good as Ruffalo did. Next we have Mia Wasikowska as Joni. Uh, Before this, she was in a couple small things and she was on the TV show In Treatment. After this, she went on to be in Alice in Wonderland, Jane Eyre, Albert Nobbs, Only Lovers Left Alive, Madame Bovary, Crimson Peak, Alice Through the Looking Glass, and then she's got some stuff coming up, too. She's fantastic. She's very good. She's so... This is the moment when I went, you're playing the tone that needs to be played by everybody else on screen. Mm -hmm. You and Julianne Moore, they realized what kind of a movie they were in. You are not in a giant budget motion picture. That's part of the problem with Annette Bening is Annette is playing it like it is one of her regular big name roles. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't understand, you're in a mumblecore movie. Like, you need to tone it way back. And Wasikowska hits those notes perfectly. She's just like, I'm just a teenager. I'm living life. It's real stupid. And I'm going to college. And I like this boy. And all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, she just lives through it. And that's how you have to play this movie. And if you play anywhere out of that lane, it's going to read weird. Yeah. She's great. She's one of my favorite things in the movie. She is. Next, we have Josh Hutcherson as Laser. We have talked about him, but just the quick hits. Before this, he was in Polar Express, the Thorough Bridge Terabithia, Journey to the Center of the Earth. After this, he was in Hunger Games, Red Dawn, which we just covered in our last series, The Disaster Artist, and he's currently on the TV show Future Man. Also, really great. He's really great. They don't give him very much, but what he does, he does well. He doesn't chew up a lot of scenery. He's very earnest, which is how his character is written. His whole thing is to push his sister to find out who this guy is because he has to wait until he's 18. And I wish they would have focused on that a little bit and him being like, I just want to know who my dad is because I don't get to see that reflection in either of my parents. Like, that would make total sense for them to push in on that a little bit. And then it'd be weird. Like, oh, I don't see myself in you at all. I actually do see myself in both my parents. Yeah. And then having Joni be the one who's like, no, I connect with him so much. There were so many opportunities. These kids are looking to this person because they feel like, I just don't get us and our moms. I feel like maybe we would learn more about ourselves if we met this guy. Yeah, like, I, like I'm like i fighting with my parents. Is this because, like, is there a biological element that's not here? Oh, that context alone would have made this movie so much it, better. It would have. And it would make total sense. And it takes two. Every time this happens, screenwriters, it takes two minutes to set this up. Just do it. Yeah, it's really bad. Oh, my gosh. Also commenting on the whiteness of this movie, Laser, really? Like, Joni is cool, and it makes sense. And they even explain where it comes from. She's she's named after Joni Mitchell. In a really beautiful and kind of bitter scene. So blue. Bravo. (laughs) Um... 
Don't quit your day job, mom. Uh, hey, it's already hard enough to open your heart in this world. Don't make it any harder. You're right. I'm sorry. It was a wonderful rendition. Beautiful. Thank you. I like this guy. Why, thank you, Nick. Yeah, that's actually one of the few times where Nick comes off as, like, normal. Yeah. And, like, oh, she's not fully wound up. But fucking laser. Laser, where did that come from? We never got that explained. That annoyed me. Because it's such a dumb name. Should have been like Jagger. Like something stupid like that. I don't know. Or Hendrix. His name should have been Hendrix. Well, and Jules would have named him and not Nick. That would have been so cool. Yeah. I would have loved it. Yep. Next we have Yaya DaCosta as Tanya. Before this, she was on All My Children and Ugly Betty. After this, she was in Tron Legacy and Chicago Fire. And she's currently on Chicago Med. You might also recognize her as being the first runner-up on season three of America's Next Top Model. Hey! That's how I know her. I was like, that's Yaya! (laughs) She lost to Ava Marcille, the shortest winner, Eva the Diva, who's now currently on America's... (laughs) I know too much about this. You do. You know way too much about it. I love it, but you know way too much about it. She's great. Great? No, I think she's actually really good. Because uh, she gets she, a great moment. She does get some great moments, but also I just like her as part of the feeling of the world that Paul's living in. Like she works with Paul or she works for Paul because it's his restaurant. And then she's sleeping with him. And then she's like wanting to have more of a relationship with him. And he's like, you're not a relationship. You're not the girl I see myself with having a relationship. Which is just. The fucking stupidest thing ever. Dirtbag thing to say with this girl that you've regularly been fucking who works for you. And also, she knows what's going on in your life, being like, motherfucker. Yeah. So, like, I just really liked her and I thought she was really good in the role. Yeah. I, I guess I just don't feel like A, there's enough of her character for me to care, and B, she didn't stand out to me that much. Mm-hmm. But. I can I can see where you're going with that. She perfectly fits what she needs to mm-hmm. do on screen to make Paul's story feel more grounded. Yeah. Because otherwise it would be real fucking screenwritery ridiculous. Okay. Now we have Arpon. Oh, Arpon? An Arpon. Singular. Uh, Zasha Mamet. Oh, yeah. Who, who plays Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, she's a girl from girls and daughter of David Mamet. That's. That's who she is. She's very funny in this movie. She's very funny in this movie. I love her as an actress. <laughs> she has a very particular lane, and she plays very well in it. Yeah. I hate her dad, but... Yeah, well, that's okay. It's not her fault. Nope. Nope. All right. Trivia. Trivia. Okay. This one will explain a few things. Oh, boy. Filmed in 23 days because the creators had rushed post-production, so it would be filmed in time for Sundance. Jeez. Even though it was admitted after the deadline, the film became one of the breakout hits of the festival. Stupid. Widest fucking movie in the universe. The film's title is based on the title of the song The Kids Are Alright by The Who. Oh, and that song is eight bajillion times better than this movie. Mm -hmm. So much better. Yep. Paul's restaurant is named W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G, a common abbreviation for what you see is what you get, which is... (laughs) Which is perhaps commentary on his character. Oh, IMDb, sometimes you're cheeky as fuck, and I love it. WYSIWYG. Oh, I know. WYSIWYG. So stupid. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah, that's it. There's not There's not much else. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just other 
garbage that like I don't care about talking about because we've already beat this thing to death. But this film was nominated for several Oscars. How many Oscars? Four. Mm-hmm. Mark Ruffalo was nominated for actor in a supporting role. I can see that. Yep. He was up against Christian Bale in The Fighter. Uh-huh. Jeffrey Rush in The King's Speech. Uh-huh. Jeremy Renner in The Town. Oh. And John Hawks in Winter's Bone. Fuck, I always forget about John Hawks and damn, that man's hot. Three of those are instantly better. And we know who won that year. It was Christian Bale with The Fighter. Fucking great role. Annette Benning was nominated for actress in a leading role. I recall this. She was up against Natalie Portman for Black Swan. Mm, so good. Michelle Williams for Blue Valentine. Never saw it. Want to at some point. Nicole Kidman for Rabbit Hole. Mm, and Jennifer Lawrence for Winter's Bone. Still want to see that movie. This year it went to Natalie Portman. That, that was a fabulous performance. Gorgeous. Wonderful. It was nominated for writing original screenplay. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's think about this, though. That It's that indie movie on original screenplay that I totally get. And that shit. Politics. No, the film wasn't man, written. This was a fever dream. This script is not good. It was up against Another Year, Inception, The Fighter, and The King's Speech. King's Speech won. Wow. And our last one, it was nominated for Best Picture. It was up against 127 Hours, Black Swan, Inception, The Fight, The King's Speech, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Now that's a category. That is a nice slate of Best Picture nominees. I would want to see other movies that came out in 2010 because I feel like I could replace this movie, knowing what I know now. Possibly. But when you look at that slate, I really like seeing... Oh, those are a bunch of different types of movies. Yeah. Some are, are stories of triumph. Some are cinematic triumphs like Inception. And some of them are more like the nitty gritty stories like Winter's Bone. And then you have like this, which is like a slice of life human story. Yeah. King's Speech 1. Man, this is a, this is a polarizing year. I, t- I fully agree. We've argued about this one a lot. Not, not like in a bad way, but like we, we agree. King's Speech won because it was it was the movie that made you feel good. It was a good story and it was a good movie. It was the movie that that year we all went, yeah, we like this movie. Yeah. The movie that probably should have won and will be historically remembered as great and significant is The, the social, social Network. Here's the thing about The Social Network, and, and this is why we, we harp on it, is that if you want to know what life was like in this very particular piece of time. You need a snapshot. Go pull out the social network. This is what life was like when Facebook started. Yeah. This is what happened. Because I remember watching that film and being like, this was college. Because Facebook started for me when I was at the very beginning of college. And I knew that it existed, but didn't get on it until college. It was still only college. I remember getting my Facebook account with my college ID. Because you had to have an EDU email address to get on Facebook. And now for it to have gone where it has. And then social media. like It's just crazy. So that's why that movie is so important. And also ridiculously well done and, and that one that won an oscar too for screenplay aaron sorkin has an oscar yay great I good know. for him but it's not I, I fincher's the reason that movie's as great as it is fincher is pretty good and jesse eisenberg really sold that so i mean it's a good movie yeah. i know i have to rate this piece of shit <laughs> fuck this movie <laughs>
What's my rating system? What is our rating system? How many lasers are you going to give it? (laughs) (laughs) How many laser skateboards? Laser skateboards. I don't know. I'm torn here because, like I said, there are moments, right? There are moments that you feel like something really cool and interesting is going on here. I'm giving it a 1.5. You have to dig through the muck. Yeah, I got to go 1.5. I can't. And I'm giving it because Julia Moore's great. Mark Ruffalo's great, but it's a bunch of white straight people in this movie. <laughs> I'm offended by that. <laughs> bunch of white straight people performing what is a queer story that has a whole lot of nuance and subtlety that gets chucked out the fucking window. Yeah. Like there's so there's such a rich, interesting, tiny story in this movie. And they got none of it on screen. It's not good. I'm annoyed. We gonna bounce back after this one? I don't know. The next movie is going to be weird. Weird? Weird. I like weird. uh, This is a movie I saw way too young. Mm -hmm. And it kind of fucked me up. But now I kind of am fascinated by it. We're going to watch I Shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, I've been trying to get you. I own this movie. I've been trying to get you to watch this one for years. So now we're going to do it. Well, I am curious. Yeah, it's got a great cast. Great director. All right. Right, so this weekend we saw It Chapter 2. 27 years after their first encounter with the terrifying Pennywise, the Losers Club have grown up and moved away until the devastating phone call brings them back. What? what? Okay, so we were really excited. We loved the first one. We really did. Yes. We are not horror movie people, which was really interesting last year when we did our series in October of horror films. But I think it really helped turn us. And so we were so excited for it. Chapter two. We got to see it. It's a three hour movie. It is long. But you know what? It is a perfectly paced three hour movie because I did not feel like it was long. No, I don't feel like it was long in retrospect. I do think the first one is better. My Uh, problem is I also don't have context with the book. Yeah, we have not read the book. We have not seen the miniseries. So we're just coming from to it as cinematic experience i will say this the first movie stands alone it very well does this one does not this is a part two so you have to have seen the first one to be able to enjoy this one yeah i believe i don't believe that makes it a bad movie this is one that does skirt the kubrick rule because it's in a series yes and no but because it's the part two there is an automatic built-in understanding that is a continuation of an already in-place story. That's the caveat I will give it. Well, and to me, it, you wouldn't go see this movie unless you'd seen the other one. Yeah. Unless like, I don't just, know any reason why. Unless you're a crazy person who's just like, I'm just going to see whatever's there. Uh, you know. I mean, more power to you. If you're just a super Bill Hader fan. I mean, a lot of people have been talking about Bill Hader, who is wonderful in this movie. He really is, because he gets to do the comedy and the drama, and just a lot of complexity is happening on screen with him. I wouldn't necessarily completely agree. I think he's fine, but I don't necessarily think I get anything super special out of him. This is a huge explosion of him doing the... He's the comedic relief through a lot of the film. But there are a lot of layers to that, which I enjoyed. I enjoyed him playing that. The true MVP of this movie is James Ransone. He plays adult Eddie. That man did every fucking thing 
that Jack Dylan Grazer did in the first film as Little Eddie. Only he made it just as believable as an adult. Yeah. And every moment he has on screen, I am dying for how awesome he is. He's amazing and incredibly impactful. I really felt a lot more for him than I ever did for Bill Hader's character. Absol- no, absolutely. And those two played off each other perfectly. Yeah. So I want more people to be talking about him because I want to see a hell of a lot more of him going forward. There is a huge amount of content warning for this film. Yes, there is a lot of homophobic hate criming. Yep. And just a lot of homophobic remarks made that I don't feel are necessary at all in any way, shape for telling the story in 2019. A pretty fat phobic storyline that wasn't necessary to the plot per se. It's not great. The topics that are dealt with in this film go above and beyond the normal level of horror movie violence and horror movie tropes that we might see. Mm-hmm. And at some points, it begs the question of, A, again, was this in the novel? Yeah. And is it trying to be a very super faithful adaptation? But B, also, Stephen King's a guy who seems pretty adaptable to, if you say, can we try and redo this? Would go, yeah, let's try it. As long as he's in on it, he's usually okay with that. He seems to be pretty okay with it. It's a movie that you need to be very careful about and go ahead and if you think any of those things might be issues, read the spoilers first. Yeah. Because honestly, this movie, if you got it spoiled, really won't ruin the experience for you. I don't have a whole lot of strong feelings about this one. I enjoyed it, Mm -hmm. but I also don't have any lasting feeling about it like I did from the first movie. Sure. I was a lot of hype for this, and I think that it's something that people who like the first movie will think, okay, cool conclusion, but also doesn't stand alone like that first movie really does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad I saw it, and cool. Also, this week, we saw Hustlers. Inspired by the New York Magazine article, Hustlers follows a crew of savvy former strip club employees who band together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients. Hustlers. It has Lily Reinhardt in it, so of course we have to see it in connection with our Riverdale coverage. Yes. Yeah, we got to see how Betty Drew fares outside of the uh, safety of Riverdale. Star billing. Star billing. Okay, so the the movie, the just the movie Hustlers. How do you feel? I think it's legit good. I think it's sneaky good. I think this is potential dark horse acting nods. Good. A lot of people are talking about J-Lo, who she's phenomenal. Lest we forget, J-Lo started in acting and was always great. Here's the thing, though. In this movie, she's a movie star. Yeah. she is. I've never seen her as movie star before. Love interest, hot chick. That's who she's been. This movie star. Yeah. I think people, people would argue that, especially Selena. Mm-hmm. She very well could have gone movie star at that point. She went. She kept going that way. She went more the music route. She did. She, I mean, for a little bit there, she did out of sight with Soderbergh, and there was there was this arc that she would have been going, but she had plans on a music career. She did the music career and launched, (laughs) and she did the things like Made in Manhattan, which she's adorable in. That movie is is great, but this is where she's legit a movie star. She's owning her persona Mm -hmm. and then using all of those acting skills that she had. Mm And just basically burning the screen down. And also Constance Wu. Oh, Constance Wu's amazing. I mean, love her on Fresh Off the Boat. I haven't seen a lot of that show, but she's great in it. Loved her in Crazy Rich Asians. 
But this is just a completely different version of her, and she's amazing, and I loved her in it. It's getting to see the the sort of strong, resolved side of Constance Wu mm-hmm. that I don't know that they always play out on screen. And like this story is really about their friendship mm-hmm. and their relationship, and I, I really loved watching that because it was unexpected to me. At every turn... You think this is going to become a tropey heist movie, mm-hmm. and it never does. It doesn't. And it very specifically doesn't. Yeah. And it's a female-led film. It's written and directed by ladies. It's great. I mean, yeah. I'm, I was really surprised by how much I really liked it. So for one, costumes needs to get some recognition for this film. <laughs> this film looks like it takes place in 2007. To up to about 2012. That's where the, the main action happens. And there is just this look that you're like, oh my God, yeah, totally. That's it. And so not only is it like this time capsule, but it's also very specific to who these women are. It's telling a story, like the brands that they're going after with the recognition. I was like, oh yeah. 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 That's when they were competing with that. Like it was perfect touch. So I really hope costumes get, get some recognition. And J-Lo for sure. Okay, so now we got to get into our supporting cast for this film, which includes Lily Reinhardt as Annabelle. Okay, I was really nervous that she was just going to be Betty. Yeah. That we weren't going to see any range because she is probably our favorite actress from Riverdale. She is. She clearly, and I, I do love the other actors for what they do, but I really feel like she has the most natural talent out of everybody, all of the kids on there. So I was super happy and pleased to see that I did not see a hint of Betty Drew in this movie. She's definitely a supporting character. She doesn't have like a super huge important role, but what she does with what she has is great. I was very surprised her character is integral as a supporting character through a good two thirds of the film. It's more about half. But she's great in the scene she's in. She's not like focus pulling. She adds what she's supposed to add. Her character has this one affectation that is really hilarious. I don't want to give it away for those of you who are going to see it or have seen it. It's hilarious. And she does it very, very well. Uh huh. She was great. So I'm really glad we saw this for her. I'll also say all the like Betty facial tick things mm-hmm. that we get in Riverdale. She doesn't do a lot of that in this movie. Which then helps me go, wow, that was a mm-hmm. character choice you made, which is impressive. Yeah. And and so of the Riverdale cast films that we have gone to see, this has been the best one. Because y'all will remember we saw Five Feet Apart and we were not fans. Nope. We owe y'all some coverage of the KJ Appa film that's on Netflix. And it's not going to oh, go well for y'all. boy. And we also we still owe you guys the one with Charles Melton. The Sun is also a star. We haven't been able to get that one. We haven't gotten to it yet. We're going to do it. But it's not been great. And we do. Oh, I forgot. Camila Mendez is in The Perfect Date on Netflix. So we need to watch that one, too. Ooh. I mean, the, the thing about it is, is that looking at those films and how they were made, I'm not surprised when this is a very high profile star vehicle. Well, and it's just a credit to her. That yeah. she was cast in this because oh, clearly yeah. she's able to do more than shoe scenery. She's very good. And I hope to see more from her. Absolutely. And while we're also talking about the supporting characters, Kiki Palmer, who plays Mercedes, she cracked me up. And then I was so shocked to see her. I mean, 
I remember her from Aquila and the Bee. Like, she was so little, she grew up, and she's she's a gorgeous woman. And it was just like, oh my god, <laughs> that's Kiki Palmer. She's hilarious, and she's great, and she and Lily are fabulous together. And mm-hmm. so it's super fun. And so go see this movie. Well, you also get Lizzo and Cardi B. Yeah, and then another surprise cameo, which may not be surprised now, but it's super fun and perfectly done. So it's a good movie. Go see it. It's really, really good. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.